Well, hey, happy Father's Day again. And I just before I dive into today's message, I just want to let you know something that happened here tonight. Uh, we were praying for this service, and, and I was feeling something, and maybe this is for, for one of you. I was really feeling strongly that, um, particular for one of the dads, we're going to be talking about a lot of things that relate to all of us. But, but in particular, there's going to be a lot of direct applications for fathers. And I had this real strong sense that there's, there's a, a dad who is on the verge of making a decision that you really should not make, that it's going to affect your family profoundly. If that's you, I want to invite you to really open your heart and mind for what God might have for you today as we, as we dive in. What we're doing this summer is we are exploring one of the most epic sections of Scripture that you're going to find in the entire Bible. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and in addition to being one of the most epic sections of Scripture, it is also one of the hardest to know what do we apply to our lives today. It is absolutely challenging, and here's why. If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. It is especially hard to discern what is descriptive and what is prescriptive in First and Second Samuel. As we've said before here, um, a lot of what's in the Bible is simply descriptive. It is describing things that happened. There are other parts of the Bible that are prescriptive. This is prescribing beliefs and behaviors that we should adopt. Well, in First and Second Kings, often the author will just say, this king was a bad king, and here's why. And then others, this king was a good king, and here's why. But in 1st and 2nd Samuel, you're often left very confused, especially around David, because you're told he's this great guy, but he does these things, and you're, you're sometimes wondering, was this a good thing? Was this a bad thing? What is going on here? Well, uh, let me give you an example of one of the, 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 the things I was, as I was reading. I was reading in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and I came across this, and I thought I knew where it was going, because I had forgotten this story. In two weeks, we're going to look at a time when one of David's sons had a rebellion against him. And so David and those who were loyal to David were fleeing Jerusalem. They were on their way out of the city. And as they're way on the way out of the city, this guy who was loyal to the former king, King Saul, this, this guy comes, Shammai, his name is, Shammai comes out and he's like, curse you, David! And he's throwing rocks at him and he's throwing dirt at him and all this kind of stuff. And so one of David's warriors goes to David he says, David, who is this guy? Let me go over and cut his head off. And David's like, no, let him curse, because perhaps the Lord even is putting these words in his mouth. Well, fast forward. The rebellion is now over. David is coming back to Jerusalem, and everyone's celebrating that David is back. And who comes out? Shammai comes out. And now Shammai is all, Hey, David, you're the best. Woo, go, David. You know, so sorry about that last thing when you're going out of town. I hope we can, uh, we can forget about that. You know, we all make mistakes, right? So now Abishai, this warrior who was going to cut off his head the first time, he's like, David, let me take this knucklehead out. And David is like, no, we shouldn't be doing that. You know, I'm king and all now. And, and he even makes an oath. He even makes an oath to say, we're not going to kill Shammai. Well, later, there's another rebellion, and, and it looks like Shammai is now turned to the light. I mean, he's, he refuses to take part. It, it, it's, it, it looks like 
if we stop right there, we've got a prescriptive lesson. Let's kill him with kindness. Look, he was nice to Shammai. Shammai is now on David's side. Let's turn enemies to friends. So just before, I was like, hey, that might be one of the, the, the lessons in, that we use. <laughs> you keep reading. And I had totally forgotten about this. On David's deathbed, do you know one of the things that he said to his son Solomon, who was going to be king? He said, he said this, and I quote, one of the first things I want you to do, he says, bring Shammai's gray head down with blood to hell. What do you do with that? Scripture is often hard to interpret. It is often hard to know what do we apply, how do we apply these things. And here's one of the dangers. If you take something in Scripture, like the story, and you only lift out part of it, you can come up with something that is not what the Bible is trying to teach. And often what you end up with is a cliche or you end up with a stereotype that's not accurate. There is a payoff when we dig deeper. Can I get an amen from saying that? When you take the time and effort to dig into the scripture, there is a payoff. This is the living word of, of God. And this Father's Day, what we're going to take a look at here is what can we learn about true strength? And how is that different from the stereotypes that people create? And what we're going to do is we're going to start with the stereotypes that are often attributed to men. And let's begin with the term that was popularized in the 2010s. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. What can we learn about toxic masculinity and true strength in today's texts? Back in the 2010s, the curtain was pulled back for a lot of folks. And story after story after story made the headlines about men who had abused their power and abused their influence. Maybe some of these are going to ring a bell. Harvey Weinstein, R. Kelly, Matt Lauer, Larry Nasser, Al Franken, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. This was happening in every sector of society. Every sector of society. From the theater to the military. From celebrity chefs to sports stars. From hip-hop to redneck. I just Googled. Just Google um, Me Too and see if some of those names, it's every sector, it's every, every society. It was everywhere, entertainment, sports, business, politics, churches. It was not hard to find examples of toxic masculinity. Well, right around Father's Day, kind of when a lot of this was happening, 2016, we pressed into that. And if you go to our archives, you'll find a message series that we called Heavenly Fathers. And in that series, we did our best to anchor to a very different vision, one that the scripture casts for men. And the difference that it makes when men who are married are faithful to their wives and they use their gifts and their strengths and their talents to care for and to protect their families. And we talked about the difference it makes when you grow up knowing what it looks like to have a father in your life who loves you and is there for you and provides wisdom and provides warnings and who had laid down his life for you. In June of 2008, on Father's Day, Barack Obama, who was a senator at the time, he spoke at a church in Chicago. And he stressed the difference that it makes to have a father in your life. 
Kids who don't have fathers, he said, are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in prison, and they're also more likely to have behavioral problems, run away from home, become teenage parents themselves. So that was 2008 in Chicago. Fast forward to fall of 2020 in Chicago. I was there, I was taking my oldest daughter on a college visit. And so we're visiting the school, the school that had Catholic roots. And for the first time, I'd never seen this before. For the first time, I went into the men's room and there was a basket, a nice little basket, and it had feminine hygiene products in it. And a little note that said, in professional writing, it said, for men who menstruate. I had never, in 53 years, I've never seen so much confusion when it comes to how do you even define man? How do you define, define woman? I see so much confusion out there. And one of the things, I just want to say straight up, one of the things that's not helpful one of the things that's not helpful, and people are trying to be helpful when they do this, but it's not helpful, is when people go to the Bible and, and you see something, but what you do is you pull it out of context. You pull it out of context. And you say, here, this is what it means to be a man, or this is what it means to be a woman, without looking at the full scope of what the Scripture says. As I've been doing my research for that, um, this upcoming series that we're going to be doing. Actually, let me back up to that. This fall, beginning um, on October 2nd, we're going to be offering a teaching series on sexuality, gender, and faith. And in our next Headlines and Happenings, actually, I want you to look for a link. It's going to be a link for events that we're going to call At the Table. We're going to have them right here. We're going to have them on, on two Thursday nights, so you can choose whichever one works best for you, August 11th, August 18th. They'll happen at 7 o'clock, and what we're going to do is we're literally going to sit around tables, and we're going to have a conversation, and, and we would love to hear from you. Before we do this series, we would love to hear from you. What are your, what are your hopes for a series like this? What are your questions for a series like this? What are your concerns around a series like this? Because again, I've, I've never seen this much confusion and, and so much animosity and so much hostility around questions of what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Well, as I've been doing my research um, for that upcoming series and having a lot of conversations, something that keeps popping up over and over and over again is how stereotypes are contributing to the confusion. One of the resources that we're going to recommend for the series, in fact, if you want to start reading this now, it's, it's a really good book. It's by a guy named Preston Sprinkle. It's called Embodied. Embodied. It's the best resource I've seen so far on this topic next to the Bible itself. It is clear, one of the reasons I love this book is it's clear that he loves people. It's clear that he recognizes the uniqueness in every individual situation. That's so important. And, and to listen to everybody's story. He's also committed to following the facts instead of what does one narrative say on the left or what does one narrative say on the right. And this is what he says about stereotypes, about stereotypes. The Bible doesn't give narrow mandates for how all men and women must behave. Now, for the record, we're all called to be virtuous. We're all called to follow you know, God's ways. While the Bible celebrates our sex differences as male and female, it gives us tremendous freedom in how we live within our sexed bodies. Unfortunately, the church doesn't always celebrate this freedom. And I laughed out loud when I read this last, next line. 
I know because I've been to men's retreats. <laughs> men's retreats don't tend to be very inclusive to all men. Oh, the text we're going to open to today is exactly the kind of text that keynote speakers will open to at men's retreats. Why? Because I've been one of those keynote speakers, and that's the kind of text I would open to. And that, like the guys, no camps, right? And all this. Now, in our fall series, we're going to share some stories of how damaging it can be when you take a text like we're going to look at today, but you take it out of context, or you take it too far, or you use it to fuel a stereotype rather than looking at what it actually says. You know, when we tell our male adults and teens and boys, this is what all real men are like. Real men like big guns and big grills and big trucks and hunting and fishing and sports and war movies. Here are the chores that they do, here's the chores they don't do. When we say that's how all men are and that's all they are, we're misrepresenting the text and we're communicating, if that's not you, you don't belong here. And that contributes to the confusion well, one of the things, in fact, that's one of the things if you ever listened to the, um, that, uh, what was the rise and fall of Mars Hill? It's one of the things that destroyed that uh, church. Now, the same that we just said here for men is the same as true for, for often for females. Sprinkle says this, women have been particularly affected by stereotypes. Most women know what it's like to be stuffed into narrow boxes of femininity. So when we tell our female adults and teens and girls, this is what all real women are like. We communicate. You don't belong here if you don't fit that narrow stereotype. Instead of reinforcing stereotypes, let's do our best to actually go to the scriptures, to actually go to the scriptures and anchor to the Bible itself. Can I get an amen on that? So this is a longer introduction than normal. Hopefully it was helpful Let's dig in. If you have your Bibles with you, let's open up to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 39. If you don't have a Bible at home, Bible.com has a great free Bible app that we recommend that you download and, uh, and take a look at. All right, in this section of Scripture, oh, there are so many I can choose from here. Uh, in this section of Scripture, it lists some of the mighty men that align themselves with David, David the giant slayer. He was one of the most successful military commanders you're going to find in the entire Bible. The list begins with three warriors who are referred to as the three. <laughs> Very good. The three. Let's look at uh, verses 8 through 12. All right. Uh, let's uh, take a look here. So these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. We're just going to call that guy J.B., uh, and he was a chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, the three, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, son of Dodo, the son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defeated the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Next to him was Shammah, oh man, Shammah, the son of Agi. Oh boy, these names. Um, the <laughs> the Herarite. Uh, where are we here? The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a great plot 
of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. All right, so these three, these three who just were described there, they are part of a larger super team that's referred to in English as the 30. Now, more than 30 are listed here in this section. So this could be like the Big Ten Conference where there's 14 teams. It could be like that. Or some believe that that term 30 that we translate as 30, uh, it could be a special designation of rank uh, or a distinction instead of just a number. So there's a lot that we don't know. But one thing we do know is this text would preach at most men's retreats. This text, as, as we dig into it, Oh, wow. All right, let me introduce you to three of the 30. Let's jump down to verse 20. Verse 20. All right, now, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. Uh, now, they don't know how to exactly translate that word. They think it means, some think it means the best men. He, he took out the two best fighters that Moab had. That's what some people think. He went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. So he's taking on lions on a snowy day. This, this individual, too, in addition to that, if you were to keep reading, he took on a seven-foot Egyptian. And what he did, I mean, talk about a great scene for a movie. The Egyptian's got a spear. All this guy's got is a club. He basically tosses down his club. He grabs the spear from the giant and takes down the giant with the giant's own spear. David put this guy, this is, talk about manly man, put him in charge of his personal bodyguard. He was in charge of an elite force of 24,000. And when David's son Solomon became king, Benaniah became the commander of Solomon's entire army. All right, if we jump all the way down to verse 39, some of you might recognize this last name on the list. So this is the very last name. Anyone recognize this? Uriah the Hittite. It says there are 37 in all. If you, if you recognize that name, it comes from one of the darkest moments in David's life, if not the darkest, when he committed adultery with um, Uriah's wife and had him killed, knowing that this is one of David's most valiant warriors. It just brings an extra, extra um, level of treachery to the whole situation. All right, now let's back up to verses 18 through 19. Here's another one of these mighty men. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, remember both those names, son of Zariah, that was the chief of the 30. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Now this name Abishai um, should sound familiar because I think I referenced him earlier. He was the one who said about the Shammai guy, should I just take the guy's head off right now? That's, that's the, the same person. In uh, chapter 21, verses 15 through 22, David goes to war against the Philistines. And during a battle, David's out there fighting and fighting and fighting, and now his strength is about spent. And on this same battlefield, there, the, these people, that, the Bible describes, it appears as though they're describing, these are relatives of Goliath that are on this battlefield. And one of them has vowed, I'm taking David out. And so David is spent. David's got no more strength. Here comes one of the giants at David. And Abishai stands between the two of them. 
takes down the giant. Well, Abishai had two brothers, um, Joab, who we just learned about, and also uh, Asahel. Now, Joab was the commander of David's men. And another man named Abner was a commander of Saul's army. And if I were making a movie, there's so much great content in here about Abner and, and Joab. If I was making a, a, a movie, I would cast that dude, from the commander from Avatar, that bad guy. I'd put him as Joab, and I'd put Josh Brolin as Abner. That's how I'd cast this thing. And if you're looking right now for proof texts to, to reinforce a stereotype of, of, of men, this would be a great section to go to. Because this is just so much testosterone going on here. Um, we never, ever, ever talked about these texts in the church where I was growing up. At one point, King Saul had died, and Abner is now commanding Saul's army. And he's commanding it in, in, for one of Saul's sons. And Joab is commanding David's men. Well, these two meet at the pool of Gibeon. And Abner and his men are on one side, Job and his men are on the other side. And Abner says, hey, let's have a little fight club just for fun. You pick 12 of yours, I pick 12 of mine. So they pick 12, the 24 come down there, they say, okay, ready, go. They go at it, and the Bible says they each grabbed each other's head with one hand, they took their other hand and thrust their daggers into each other's sides, and all 24 died. And so big fight breaks out now, so there's this battle going on. The battle starts to go for Joab's side, David's men's side, so Abner says, I gotta get out of here. So Abner starts running. Now, the, the, one of Job's brothers, the Asahel, he takes off after Abner. And so I'm picturing Abner as this big tough guy, kind of like one of the CrossFit guys. They can run, but they can't run like track guys, right? They're just kind of gunning it out as athletes. So picture that, so there goes Abner, he's just running for his life. But then it says that Asahel, he was like a gazelle. So I picture him just like those marathoners that just float. So here comes Asahel just tracking him down. And Abner's like, hey, stop this. I don't want to have to stop and kill you. And Asahel just keeps coming. And he goes, I'm serious. How am I going to look your brother in the eye if I have to kill you? And Asahel just keeps coming. Abner's like, hey, see that guy over there who's dead? Take his armor. Take his weapons. Just stop following me. And Asahel's getting closer and closer. So Abner takes his spear as he's running forward. He throws it backwards like this, kills Asahel. So then, <laughs> this, this thing continues to escalate. They eventually, the, the two battling sides call it quits for the day. Well, fast forward a little bit. Abner, Abner is, um, gets, gets uh, the, the king, the king of Israel, makes some accusation against Abner. And Abner's like, that's it, I'm done. I'm done with you. And so he goes over to David and said, David, if you want, I can deliver Israel to you. They'll listen to me, not that other king. I can get you the army. I can get you the leaders. Just say the word. And David's like, yeah, let's do it. So before all that happens, Joab gets Abner, pulls him aside like he's going to have a little conversation, and he assassinates Abner. Okay, this is the kind of stuff that is happening throughout First and Second Samuel. And if you wanted to proof text to say, see, this is how you are a manly man, if we were a church that was simply reacting to all of these things all around us, and we're like, hey, let's just show what men are all about, we could, we could look to these texts and take them out of context and say, here we go. Do you think we could find anything that would reinforce a toxic stereotype? We could. 
If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. We turn towards toxic when we elevate the stereotype above the full revelation of Scripture. Can I get an amen to that? Can I get an amen to that? Amen. amen. That's when we start to turn towards toxic. When we take the stereotype and we put the stereotype above the Scripture, instead of saying, what does the Scripture say first? And the same can be said of, of women. You could do the same thing with women in these texts, and some people do. If you're looking to reinforce the traditional stereotypes, you'll find them in, in, in 1 and 2 Samuel. You'll find this tragic account of this, this woman. Her, her sons are, are killed. They're slaughtered in this field. And there's this tragic scene of her trying to keep the birds and the, the wild animals away from the body day and night. So you've got that more traditional stereotype that you could proof text and reaffirm. But you also find scenes like this in 2 Samuel 20, 1 through 26. Joab is pursuing an enemy of the state named Sheba. They trap him in a walled city. And Joab and his men prepare to attack. And as they do, a woman says, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you attack us, can I talk to Joab? <laughs> so she has a little conversation with Joab. She says, I'll be right back. She gets the head of Sheba. She throws it over the wall. Says, we good now? He's like, yeah, we're good. That doesn't seem to fit a lot of the stereotypes that, that we often see. Preston Sprinkle puts it like this. Women in the Bible do all sorts of things that weren't considered feminine. They fight in battles and win wars, sometimes by smashing tent pegs through the skulls of men. They're unmarried businesswomen like Lydia. They're fearless, like the three women named Mary who stood at, uh, by Jesus at the cross after most of the men had scattered. Many wealthy women followed Jesus and even funded his ministry. Quite a challenge for those who think that males must always be the breadwinners. Most, this is the money verse right here. Most gender stereotypes come from culture, not the Bible. In both the Old Testament and the New, David, he's lifted up as a positive example of a godly man. And David was a fierce warrior. The reason I spent extra time with those stories, David was in charge of these guys. They looked to him. So he was a mighty warrior and, and he was a musician and he was a poet. And there's even an occasion where David breaks out into a very exuberant dance as the great theologian Ren McCormick reminds us in Footloose. I, I can't think of anyone in the Bible who cries and grieves more than David does. In fact, after a major battle, as David was weeping over the death of someone who had become an enemy, Joab confronts David. He's like, why do you love those who hate you and hate those who love you? A lot of these guys didn't understand him. He says, if you don't go out there right now you're, and encourage your men, they're going to be gone by nightfall. All right, so of the traits I just listed, which ones are linked with David being a godly man and which ones aren't? Or is that the wrong question? It's the wrong question. As we begin to bring this teaching to a close today, I want to invite you to write this down. In an age when there is so much confusion surrounding gender, we have the guardrails and the guidance of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. If I can get everybody's full attention, including the people online here for this, there is so much confusion about gender these days. On the far right, 
we're tending to find a very narrow definition of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. On the far left, you've got people redefining definitions of man and woman to be whatever you want it to be. If the Bible is true, God didn't make a mistake when he made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are his workmanship. You are created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. You have a unique set of gifts and talents and passions and experience that nobody else has. Don't let somebody tell you you have to fit this narrow stereotype or that, that you just should decide whatever you think you should do. If you feel like you don't fit the narrow definitions for those on the far right, it doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. There are females who love four-wheelers. Can I get an amen maybe from someone here? There are. I've met them. Four-wheelers aren't just for dudes. There are males who love the arts. They aren't just for non-menly men. They're wonderful. The world needs your unique combination of talents and gifts and passions. Don't try to just fit into someone else's little box. And when it comes to the voices on the far left who are encouraging people to just do whatever seems right in your own eyes, does that ever end well? To do what's right in your own eyes. We all need time-tested beliefs and values that we can anchor to so that we don't just get blown about by the culture like a sailboat in a storm. In an age when there's so much confusion around gender, we've got the guardrails and the guidance of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In this broken world, we've got the guidance of a good Father who reveals his wisdom and his warnings and his character through his creation and his word. We've got the example of Jesus the Son, the word made flesh. If you want to see what God looks like as a person, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Apply his teachings, follow in his footsteps. And we can ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit who can help us discern right from wrong, who can bring about change within us, and can help us become more Christ-like. There are some traits that are so good and so helpful that God desires all of us to have them. All of us. Like integrity, humility, loyalty, love, obedience to God's laws. And then there's the things that are uniquely you, and uniquely you, and uniquely you, and uniquely you. I've come to believe that we become more uniquely ourselves when we don't conform to the stereotypes that others promote or even when we follow our own deceitful hearts. Here's the invitation for you today. Let's rediscover what it means to find our identity in Christ. And I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that right now through this prayer and through the song that follows. Would you please pray with me? Oh, forgive us, Father. You have given us good laws. You, you've put before us life and death and you've invited us to choose life. And so often we choose to go our own way. We thank you, Jesus, for living the life that we couldn't, for setting the perfect example for us, and for inviting us to follow you 
So Holy Spirit, we want to receive you as that gift. Change our hearts. Change our minds. Help us to put our trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord that we may be forgiven and set free in a world that has so few examples of what it means to be a follower of you. Lord, may they see you in us. Christ, may you be magnified in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,